As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Well, Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of you is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honey. By them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So teach that word to us now by your spirit, and show us Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Song of Solomon maybe isn't a book of the Bible that we turn to all that often, uh, but it's found in God's word between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. So if we get to Isaiah, you've gone too far. It's on page 713 in many of our pew Bibles. And I want to think about this passage in connection with the seventh commandment this evening. So Song of Solomon chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 4. Let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will exalt your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, well, when we got to the fourth commandment, we did a sort of short series on that commandment and thought a lot about the Sabbath over a period of weeks. And I thought we could do the same thing as we come to the seventh commandment. Um, just as a preacher of the catechism, one thing I've noticed over the years is we always try to do the catechism in a year, and that puts a certain downward pressure, particularly on the end of the year. So I feel like so often when I get to the end of the catechism, it's sort of a run to the end, and some, sometimes the, the final parts of the catechism don't get considered together. So since we're already way behind on the catechism and getting done in a year, uh, we don't have that downward pressure, um, and I thought it would be good for us to consider, um, in connection with the seventh commandment roughly, uh, the Song of Songs together. Um, because it's a book that God has specifically given for us as wisdom literature for how to love. Um, wisdom literature we know in the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, especially Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, we, we know and we think of and we think of wisdom literature. And maybe some of us know that the Song of Solomon is wisdom literature, but we're not sure what exactly the wisdom is that's being communicated. Um, and so I thought it would be good for us to take the time to think about it, particularly in connection with the Seventh Commandment, because I think because of the culture that we live in, oftentimes when we consider the Seventh Commandment, we are always majoring in what the commandment is telling us not to do. Um, and I think that's needed for our time to talk about uh, how God holds up a standard for how we are to behave, especially in connection with our bodies, and how countercultural that is to what the world is saying today. It's a needed message. It's an important message. But then I don't think we spend enough time sufficiently considering the glories of love and marriage as God has created it. 
Um, so if it's always all about the vices to be avoided and never about the virtues to be commended as evidences of our Creator's great glory in His creation, I think something is missed. And God has given us a whole book of the Bible to talk about how to love, to give wisdom to us. I think that's applicable whether you're married or single. You might have noticed that the catechism actually takes the time to consider single people. Um, and I know sometimes single people can say they, they feel left out in these kinds of conversations or they don't feel like it applies to them. I appreciate that that is said in the catechism. I think it was because Ursinus was single at the time the catechism was written. So that was on his mind. Um, I once made the mistake of saying that he, in a, in a Sunday school class, that he married late in life. He was married and eight years later he died. And I think people took that as marriage killed him, which wasn't my point. But um, so I think we can have many, many kinds of different misunderstandings um, about love and marriage. But I think these, these are relevant to, to understand the beauty of God's creation. Um, and God has given us a whole book about it. And it would be a shame, particularly in a culture, in a world, and in an environment that needs so badly to hear about these things rightly understood, uh, to ignore God's wisdom on that matter. So I want to think about this over the next few weeks together, to think about this book and to try to understand it together. Now, this book is difficult to understand because it's poetry, and poetry requires interpretation. Um, and sometimes, I, I don't know if you've ever tried with poetry, maybe some of you are great enthusiasts of poetry, but for most of us, or many of us, when you read poetry, sometimes you say, okay, I, I don't know what to make of that, and we, we need help. And this is probably one book of the Bible that we need the most help trying to figure out what to do with it. And so tonight what I'd like to do is kind of give an introduction to the book before we really begin to consider it together. Um, so this is a little more of an introductory work than we generally do um, in a preaching service, but I hope it'll be beneficial for us to think about this book, to try to understand how God has put it in here, to think about questions like who wrote it, uh, what kind of literature is it, how are we to interpret it, and where is Christ in this book? So to think about some of those things and to get a general sense of the book before we dive in to many of the particulars. Um, and perhaps more, book, more than any other book of the Bible, this book needs that kind of help because it's been subject to so many different kinds of interpretations. Um, in an article that appeared in Christianity Today uh, in the 50s, uh, Meredith Klein wrote this, almost anything can be read into any book if you are determined enough, C.S. Lewis recently observed. So C.S. Lewis recently observed, you see how old this article is. But almost anything can be read into a book if you are determined enough. Commenting on the interpretation suggested for his own fantastic fiction, Lewis added, some of the allegories thus imposed on my books have been so ingenious and interesting that I often wish I had thought of them myself. Um, you can read almost anything in there. And, and Dr. Klein goes on to say, if you cock your ear just right, perhaps you will detect afar off a chuckle and the amen of the author of Song of Songs. He has had troubles with the interpreters too. In fact, there is no book of the Old Testament which has found greater variety of interpretation than the Song of Songs. Uh, so we probably need more help interpreting this book than maybe any other. We want to try to understand it best for our purposes. And we can say some things at the very beginning about this book of the Bible. We can say about this book of the Bible what we can say of any book of the Bible. Uh, why does it exist? Why is it here? 
It's part of God's inspired word. And because of that, we know the truth of what Timothy said about all of God's word, that it's profitable for, try again, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We know that this is profitable for us. Every part of the Bible is important. Uh, second, we know that this book is in some sense about our Lord Jesus Christ. That was also his testimony about all of the scriptures. He said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So we know that this book is profitable for us. It has something to teach us. It has something to teach us about Christ. He's here in this book. Um, and thirdly, we know that this book reveals the will of God for use in our lives. Um, that's what the law said. Deuteronomy 29, 29 said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Um, and so some of those things we can say about the Bible generally, we can say about the Song of Songs specifically, um, that it's God-breathed, it's profitable for us, that Jesus is in it, that it was written down for our lives, uh, for use for us. Um, and if they weren't necessary for us, if they weren't important, they wouldn't be included in the Word. God included this book, and He made it to be understandable, to be understandable, to be applicable to our lives. So that should give us some encouragement as we come to it. It might be poetry, it might be difficult, but God has given it to us to be understood. So we want to think about this book together. And we can first think about the author of the book. Um, already in this sermon, I've called the book two things. I tried not to do it, but it's happened already. I've noticed it, and I'm just going to roll with it. Um, we call it the Song of Solomon here. That's how it is in the ESV. That's how it's titled. But we know that sometimes it's given another title, Song of Songs. And you can see the reason for the two titles right there in verse 1. It's the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Right? So you can either call it the Song of Songs, because that's what it says it is, or you can call it the Song that Solomon's, because that's what it says it is. Um, and so those titles use it in, in both senses. And so we can say this is Solomon's book. And this book is the Song of Songs. Now, maybe when you memorize the list of books of the Bible, you memorize Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, and maybe you thought of Song of Songs, but never really thought about what does that mean? Why is it the Song of Songs? Um, is that just repetitive? Well, it's Song of Songs kind of like Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When we say he's the king of kings, he's the king over all the other kings. When we say he's the Lord of lords, he's the Lord over all other lords. So what do you think it means when we say it's the song of songs? It's the song over every other song. That's a kind of radical claim being made right at the beginning of this book, isn't it? That of all the songs, this is the song of songs. This is the one that comes to us in connection with Solomon. But does that mean that Solomon wrote this song, that we should think of it as Solomon wrote it? Well, not necessarily. Um, it could well be that he wrote it. But I think it's particularly related to him because he's so related in Scripture to wisdom literature. It's been interesting over the years, some people have argued against Solomon writing this 
because they said, this is a song that celebrates marital love. And if anyone is qualified to sing the virtues of monogamy, it's not Solomon. In fact, he might be the last person you would ask to write a book like that. Uh, Someone who would go to one of his wives and say, my dear, you are one in a thousand. And she might say, well, thank you. Wait, what? (laughs) You know, one of a thousand, because that's what we're told in the scriptures, right, about Solomon. He loved many foreign women, we read in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old and his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as, it was, as was the heart of David his father. You know, honey, you're one in a thousand. doesn't mean so much when there are literally a thousand wives that you have. And so he doesn't seem to be the paragon of virtue when it comes to marriage. So some people have said we shouldn't see him as the author of this book. Um, I I don't think that's necessarily true because what does the Bible also tell us about Solomon? He was very wise and his wisdom spanned all sorts of topics. And we already said this is wisdom literature. This is wisdom literature particularly for how to love. Um, That's what God is teaching his people here, specifically in the context of marriage, but it has broader implications about the nature of love. And we certainly know Solomon's qualifications when when it came to wisdom. When the Lord came to him and offered that he could ask anything he wanted to ask of, you remember that he asked for wisdom. And the Lord gave it to him. And we're told the extent of his wisdom in 1 Kings 4, 29 to 34. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. He knew a lot about everything. Um, He studied all kinds of natural things. And as we go along in the Song of Solomon, it's rich with comparisons and allusions drawn from the world around. Uh, the wisdom of Solomon being brought to bear. And his, his wisdom was not only over extensive things, but it was deep and it was wide. Uh, he had great insight into all of these different facets of life, including the arts, including poetry, including songs. That's interesting that put right alongside all the Proverbs he wrote or all the songs he wrote. Um, and maybe this is the song of songs because he wrote a thousand and five songs and this was the greatest of them. But whether he wrote it or sort of oversaw it, it's just his uh, by reputation. And it's attached to wisdom and the wisdom for understanding these things. It's important that it's connected to someone who has this wisdom, this insight into the world, 
um, like no one else had. And so we also learn something then about how he goes about talking about this topic. It's interesting to think of all the different books of the Bible and all of the different things that God communicates to us, and they're not all one genre. They're not all in one form, right? And some of us probably like certain forms of the Bible more than we like others. Um, I know when I first started preaching and had to preach things, it was the easiest thing to preach a historical narrative, something that's a story. It's easy to understand a story. It's easy to preach a story. Sometimes the Psalms were harder because you had to figure out what, what is the poetry attached to this meaning. There are letters in the Bible. There are all kinds of different things. And if you had all of these genres before you and then someone said, I want you to write something about love and marriage, would you think that poetry is the best way to do it? I've had a chance to kind of think about these questions over the course of the week, but just ask yourself that question now. What are the advantages of poetry when it comes to a subject like love and marriage? Well, there are a lot of general advantages to poetry. Poetry uses an economy of words. Um, poetry can say a lot in a little. Um, someone's even called poetry the art of condensation of distilling down ideas into really short and punchy forms. And it can do things that other things can't do. So I thought, I thought I'd give you one simple example. Uh, there's a poem by Ogden Nash called A Word to Husbands. And here is his poem about A Word to Husbands. To keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. Now, it communicated something to you, didn't it? Uh, there, there was, everyone got a chuckle out of it. You can always get a good chuckle out of Ogden Nash poetry. Um, but that's kind of punchy, isn't it? In a way that if you're trying to make that kind of joke and, and make it more long form or trying to put it in a paragraph, it would lose something, wouldn't it? There, there's something in that form that communicates a kind of charm. There's something that's condensed down into that that makes it, that makes it funny. It, it adds extravagance through that communication without being filled with words. It's an economy of words. It condenses it. Think about something a little more serious. Think about the poetry of God's word. Think about what God says in Psalm 94, verses 17 through 19. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. There's a power to that, isn't there, in that poetry that would be hard to communicate in a paragraph of description. My soul would have lived in the land of silence. Or that, that image of when my foot slipped, your hand held me up. There's something in that, isn't there? there there's, a, there's, an, there's a communication there in those short words that drives it home in a way that other things couldn't. Or the balance of that that's reflected in the English translation, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheered my soul. You see how poetry can do more with less? Um, 
One person even said it tends to be more evocative than explicative. It's not so much meant to explain things as to evoke feelings. Um, We might not exactly understand entirely what's meant by the land of silence. Um, But we can imagine that a land of silence would be a terrible place to be. And the Lord saves our soul from living in a land of silence. You see, that evokes something more than explains it, doesn't it? Um, and, And that's something you can do with poetry. It evokes things. It uses a a shortening form of words. It is able to communicate something vividly without being extensive. And that's why in one sense, poetry can be difficult because we have to figure out what is the the attitude that we are meant to be, what, what what is it trying to evoke from us as we read it. Um, But at the same time, it makes it the perfect vehicle to talk about something as intimate as love and marriage. Um, Because if it was just laid out and explained, it might be too frank for us. Um, It might be too uncomfortable for us to preach a series through in a Sunday series. Because it's by its nature a very personal and intimate topic. And so what does the Lord do by telling it to us through poetry? He can communicate things in metaphor that draw ideas from us, that make our minds go places, but without being invasive into personal, intimate things. It allows the author to kind of draw the curtain over the things that he doesn't want us to see and that we shouldn't look at to communicate what we should see. I like how one person put it. The extensive use of metaphors enables the author to control to a significant degree what the reader sees. Instead of looking with lust, the reader is inspired to look with wonder. It renders our looking less voyeuristic by clothing the lovers in poetic metaphors. The images may be strongly visual, but they are literary. Part of a text, not a picture. Metaphor is a sophisticated literary technique for managing the reader's gaze. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful artist, and he knows how to communicate truth in the best way. He knows how to work with beautiful things the best way. And he's chosen to work this way so he can control what we see and what we don't see in these pictures. To be invited into this intimate setting that's conveyed to us in the Song of Songs in a way that's right and wise and beneficial for God's people. And so in that sense, it's a wonderful way for God to communicate to us about these topics. So then the final major thing we have to think about when we come to the Song of Songs is how are we meant to interpret it? Because there's a variety of approaches that have been used in coming to this book a variety of approaches to saying, how do we interpret the things that we find here? And we could maybe say there have been three dominant ways of looking at this book. Um, And the first dominant way of looking at it has been to say, it's an allegory. Um, It's saying things that sound like things we recognize from the world, but really there's a kind of hidden message behind it. Everything in this book is really standing for something else. 
um, that it is the story of mutual love between God and his people. But what seems to be the relationship of a husband and a wife or a a husband-to-be and a bride-to-be, that really is just a picture of um, something else, something that's being hidden in there. In Judaism, it was the love between Israel and God. Um, in Christianity, oftentimes people will use this kind of interpretation to say, this is really about Christ and the church. Um, the problem with it, if you make it an allegory, is that you can make it mean almost anything you want it to mean. Um, you extend out all of these allegories in ways that I don't think anyone ever intended to be extended. One person said, you can make it mean almost anything. There is no limit to plausible possibilities. Anyone with a knack for imagination can readily convince himself that his latest flight of fancy is the true decipherment of the song's mysterious sense. Um, And I like the example that one commentator gave. He quoted from Song of Solomon 6, verse 11. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And he said, "Now, now let's think about that passage. What does that mean? Solomon talks about a nut orchard. What is a nut orchard? Well, clearly the nut orchard is the church. And what do we know about nuts? Well, the kind of nuts that they were talking about, I haven't gotten to the punchline yet, don't start laughing. Um, The kind of nuts we're talking about were probably walnuts. So he's probably talking about a walnut orchard. And what do we know about walnuts? They have hard shells and they have sweet kernels. And so this must be the message, that the church is like this nut orchard, and it's like that walnut that has a hard shell. And why does the church need a hard shell? Because we face many tribulations in this world. We need to have a hard shell. But beloved, inside that hard shell, isn't there a sweet kernel? That sweet kernel of what the Lord has made us in Christ, um, that we've been hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that who the church is? And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And you see how you can sort of leap into all of that and make it about that. But the real question is, is that anything that was in Solomon's mind when he started writing about this nut orchard? Um, Probably not. Um, All those things are scriptural, right? The church does have to go through many tribulations to the kingdom of God. We are hidden with Christ in God. The Lord does surround his people like the mountains surround Jerusalem. It's just that's not what this text is about at all. And I like the commentator who concluded his looking at this one example and said, there seems to be no obvious reason why that should be connected with hard shells and sweet kernels or with believers being hidden with Christ in God. He said, in fact, I can think of some churches that might aptly be described as a nut orchard while using the imagery in an entirely different sense. (laughs) Right, and that's what's going to happen if we just take this as kind of a wax nose that we can form any way we want. We can draw whatever kind of free association out of the text we want to. I don't think that's what Solomon has in mind. I don't think that's what we're meant to do with this text. The, the next approach will be the typological approach to say there's not a hidden meaning behind the text, but there are types and shadows and then the things that are the true fulfillment. So it's not so much a hidden meaning if you take it typologically. It's more like a double meaning. Uh, there's a type and then something that corresponds to that type. That's how the author of Hebrews would often speak, said when the tabernacle was told to be constructed, it was a type of the true heaven. 
Um, and so the, the priests went into the, heavenly, the, the earthly copy of the heavenly things, but they were corresponding to a heavenly reality to teach us that when Jesus came, he didn't enter into the tent made by hands, but he actually entered into the true tent, which is in heaven. That's what real typology is, a type, uh, an example that corresponds to a reality. It's pointing to something outside of itself, and some people have tried to do that with the Song of Songs as well. Yes, it's Solomon, and yes, it's his Shulamite bride. Those are the two main characters of this. But of course, Solomon is a type of the true king, Jesus, and the bride is the type of the true bride, the church. So everything in this then is pointing to something outside of itself. Um, and the love that they have corresponds for the love Christ has for his church. So there's a type and an anti-type, and that's how people take this. But this becomes problematic too, because there are certainly some ways in which Solomon is a type of Christ as a king of Israel, but not everything about Solomon is typological. Not everything is a type pointing to a reality. And if we go too far down that line, then we can be confused by this as well. Um, his marriage, Solomon's marriage, is no more a messianic type than any other marriage is. Um, that's what Paul seems to teach us, that marriage in general is a picture of Christ and his church, not Solomon's marriage in any particular way. So if we don't want to think the text has some kind of hidden meaning that we have to ferret out or some kind of double meaning that points to something else, how should we take this? And I think the people are right who say we should take this in a natural way. This poem about a husband and wife are about a, wait for it, husband and wife. Um, that what God is doing is giving us this picture of marriage uh, to help us understand what he has created it to be and then also some of the difficulties and challenges that we face with marriage in this world. Um, and that's what really is being communicated here, uh, that this is just the natural approach. Now, some people have not liked this, particularly because they say, well, then it seems like the Bible has this book that's all about love and marriage and all of the intimacy, including physical intimacy, and is the Bible really, really doing that for us? Does that make the Song of Songs a little too a little too real and a little too practical. Um, and I like what one person said. Why should the church stumble at the pr in the presence of a song extolling the dignity and beauty of human love and marriage? Considering how large the subject looms in the attention of mankind, had it not been remarkable if there were not such an extended treatment of it in the volume God has given us for reproof, correction, and for instruction in righteousness? And all the more so when we think how sordid is the world's attitude towards the matter and how dim has become the saint's apprehension of the paradisic view of marriage. Thus understood, the Song of Songs unites with the other poetical books of the Old Testament in displaying the inspired fruits of godly reflection upon the law and especially in eliciting the relevance of the law for the great issues of human life. I think it's right to say we should not be, try to be wiser than God. He's given this book for an obvious reason, to teach how the law relates to wisdom concerning love and marriage. Um, and so what does, the what does this book of the Bible then do for us? What will we see in it as we go along? Well, it's written to us as if picturing the ideal marriage. Love and marriage as it was in the Garden of Eden before the fall of Adam and Eve. There was that blessed time of marriage that it wasn't corrupted yet by the fall, that beautiful 
creation of God existing perfectly between two people and under the blessing of our God. It's the picture we have in Genesis 2, 23 to 25. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, this, is, this is an ideal creation of God. This was a perfect creation of God in the beginning uh, for man and woman to exist together in this relationship. It was the beauty of his creation. It existed under his blessing. Right? We read in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And I like how one person said, the song confronts us with love as it was in the beginning. And it lets us hear again the divine marriage benediction first addressed to the lover and his beloved in man's first home. That they existed under the blessing of God. Um, it was an ideal creation. Of course, it now exists in the midst of a fallen world. And so that, that good creation, that, that good thing that was created now faces difficulty in the context of a fallen and broken world. There's a lot of longing and fulfillment. There's a lot of uncertainty in this poem as it goes along. It reminds us that, that love and marriage are, are made much more difficult as a result of the fall. Um, two broken people are together in it. Um, and there are all kinds of difficulties that it creates. It reminds us how far short of that ideal we all fall. It's intended to drive us into the arms of Christ, to remind us that he alone is complete and perfect in his love, and that his love for us is really our only hope in life and in death, and to remind us of the good news that Christ came to restore the things that were broken in the fall, including love and marriage, that he offers hope for broken people in this institution. Um, that Christ is a redeemer and restorer of the whole creation, including the marriage creation. That he's the hope of God's people there as well. Uh, the good news we need as people with broken relationships, both in marriage and beyond, is found in the unbreakable relationship God has forged for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the remedy for failed love has always been found in God's unfailing love. And as the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so we actually don't need to look very far to find Jesus in this book. Lots of people said, where, where is Christ in the Song of Songs? If he's not there as a, an allegory or if he's not there as a type, then is he, is he here? Well, he's here as the redeemer of marriage too as the restorer of that part of creation that was broken by the fall as well. We know God as the God who works out his redemptive plan in the lives of his people throughout history. And we're to read this book as part of that redemptive historical story. Um, let me just end with one last quote by O. Palmer Robertson in this regard. So when we see this as part of Christ's redemptive historical work, when this perspective is fully comprehended, no need exists to find Christ in the song. 
in any other way than as the redeemer and restorer of the original marriage relationship first celebrated by Adam and Eve. This interconnectivity of two persons, male and female, must be viewed as one of the most amazing manifestations of God's creative powers. How wondrous it is that this very physical relationship could be such a way of uniting two souls into one, such a means for communicating love, such a source for giving and receiving pleasure, and at the same time, such a program for extending and expanding the human race as well as the people of God across countless generations. The intimate relationship of man and woman shines forth as one of God's greatest creative acts. Christ's restoration of this relationship by his death and resurrection shines forth as one of his greatest gifts to renewed humanity. But the message of the song does not center on the love of Christ for his church. Instead, the purpose of the song is to focus on the love between redeemed man and redeemed woman in the context of Christ's recreative work. I love that. We don't have to look for where is Jesus in this book. He's there as the healer of what sin has broken. Um, and this is his wisdom to those in a broken world about how to love. Um, as such, I hope we see the importance of it. Um, and I hope that piques our interest to continue to look at this book together and to think about God's wisdom for us in how to love. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the wisdom that you have given to us to show us the glories of living decent and chaste lives uh, inside or outside the state of holy marriage. And we thank you that you've given us this wisdom. We confess that it's needed in our world. And so, Lord, we pray that this would be a help to us to not only see the vices to be avoided in the seventh commandment, but also the virtues to be put on, and that we might extol you for the glories of this great creation of yours in marriage and also its great restoration by our, by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take up our psalters together, and as a song of response, turn to number 24B, The Earth and Its Riches. We'll stand together and sing all the verses of 24B.
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts now to the Lord and receive his blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Amen. People of God, go in peace. Thank you.